0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, August 3rd. Now, how mainstream American Jewish groups that rarely criticize Israel are reacting to the new law there, weakening the judiciary. And what are the implications for U.S.-Israel relations at the governmental level? With us for this is Ron Campius, Washington Bureau Chief for JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. That's a news organization. Ron, thanks for joining us. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you. Can you start by reminding people of what the change in the law actually entails?
0: well the the first there's a whole package of laws that are supposed to go through and um the one that just went through a couple of weeks ago uh removes from the supreme court the power to uh review um laws and decision executive decisions uh and declare them to be uh, not to meet a reasonable standard in other words to say that they're uh that they're unreasonable and this has been exercised for instance in uh, uh most recently in in Netanyahu's attempt to uh uh to uh, make a um, a thrice convicted tax evader Arya Derry uh, the interior minister saying that it's just not reasonable by any sort of standards to allow that person to be in such an influ- in influential position and so he he wants that uh, he wants the Supreme Court not to have that power in order so, for him to, to to fill his cabinet the way he sees fit.
1: Before we get to the American Jewish reaction, uh, that is the American Jewish reaction, just for a little more context from over there, there have been big protests in Israel. A lot of people have seen that in the news. How big, and are they continuing? Yeah, the
0: protests are continuing from what I can see. I mean, I think people, you know, Netanyahu certainly hoped that they would peter off as soon as they started in February. How big is like, uh, it's hard to say because, you know, police in Israel, don't give counts because they don't want to be accused of being partisan one way or the other but the protesters say that they're in the other uh, hundreds of thousands uh yeah a couple of hundred thousand in Tel Aviv a couple of hundred thousand or maybe a little less across the rest of the country and um and and the and uh, Netanyahu like I said he'd hoped that they'd they would peter out but they they haven't now the uh, Knesset is in recess I think he hopes that's going to give him a bit of a breather but then you're still seeing the protesters coming out because what, what happens in Israel the Knesset recesses in July, supposedly nothing's supposed to happen until after the Jewish holidays in late September, uh, and, and nothing will happen legislatively. So at least in the immediate sense, there's nothing to spur the protests, but nonetheless, they're, they're, they're going out.
1: Who's for the law and who's against it in Israel? Does that break down along demographic lines that are clear enough uh, to summarize it briefly?
0: I think the demographic lines that would break down on are you know are right and left. I don't think that you know there's been an attempt by the the government by the people who who are proponents of the law to suggest that uh, the the uh, the people who oppose it are mostly Ashkenazi and supposedly elite. The people who uh, uh, are for it are, are Mizrahi or Sephardi and not the elite. You know, I'm a, I'm Sephardic. My family in Israel are all uh, either Sephardic or Mizrahi. Those are the people, that, or at least one part of my family are. Uh, they're all part. You know, I'm not coming out in any kind of position, but they're all right. protesting the. Uh, uh, the thing, so that's just anecdotal, but you know, then right. you can it. And Sephardic
1: names. meaning for people who don't know, kind of people with um, uh, more recent roots in the Middle East, and the Ashkenazi, uh, more like people who've emigrated from Europe or the United States. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And the Ashkenazis, of course, uh, helped establish. Uh, were, were the leaders in establishing in Israel for decades. They were the elite, but that's that's changing. That demographically has changed a lot in Israel. With just simply by dint of uh, of intermarriage and it's not so clear anymore Uh, but otherwise certainly the ultra orthodox are for the changes because uh, they see the courts as having um inhibited uh their efforts to uh to to consolidate certain um certain things they want for instance they want to they want to be able to uh legislate and to to codify uh the fact that they don't go to they don't have to do army service uh that's one thing. They want a greater, they don't want the religious courts, which control civilian life, civil life, like marriage and death and divorce in Israel, they don't want them to have to answer to the Supreme Court, which in certain cases mm-hmm. they do. So the so more that's,
1: religiously orthodox tend more to be for this. Now, to the American Jewish context, your article starts by saying for months earlier this year, Mainstream American Jewish groups waffled on how much to weigh in on Israel's internal political debates, something many had studiously avoided in the past. But that felt like a distant memory on Monday, this is Monday last week, after Israel's parliament approved a law that its authors and critics, uh, including many of those American Jewish groups alike, said would reshape the country. So what changed last Monday? I, you know, what,
0: what changed between March when they waffled in last Monday, I think, is just seeing the uh, uh, Netanyahu press ahead with this. I think they'd uh, hoped in March that that uh, after he, you know, what had happened in March is that his defense minister, Yoav Galong, spoke out against pushing so hard. He was, he was, the defense minister was in favor of the reforms that Netanyahu was proposing, but he saw how, how much this was ripping Israel apart, including its military establishment. And he saw it was even affecting military readiness. So Netanyahu fired Yoav Galant. There were massive, massive, you know, unprecedentedly large protests because he fired Yoav Galant. And then he he uh, rescinded his firing of Yoav Yoav Galant and said he was going to take his recommendation and take a break. And I think that the American Jewish organizations were watching that. This was a tremendously uncomfortable thing for them. I think ideologically, just, uh, it, you know, in terms of their their own demographics and the, culturally, they are against the reforms. Uh, but they're also like inherently against criticizing Israel, at least for its internal, you know, especially for its, uh, its internal politics. So they said, OK, great, we can take a break now. You know, this is all going to sort out or perhaps it'll sort out over the next few weeks. And that didn't happen. Netanyahu went back to trying to push through the reforms. And so now it's almost like they've been prepped psychi- psycholo- psychologically for the last six months or so to finally say, okay, that's it. We we're we're going to have to step up and uh, and make it clear that we we oppose these reforms right now.
1: And so you quote, for example, the position of the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL is pretty well known. But how would you describe the place of the AJC, the American Jewish Committee, in American Jewish politics, typically? I think, you know, until
0: about uh, three decades ago, the AJC and the ADL were pretty much in the same sort of liberal uh, space. They wouldn't call themselves partisan, but they were certainly more aligned with the Democratic Party. And more recently, the AJC has focused more on foreign affairs. It's a little more hawkish, a little more centrist than the ADL, uh, whereas three decades ago, a church-state uh, separation thing at the Supreme Court might've attracted amicus briefs from both organizations. You're less likely to get it from the from the AJC now. Um, And so it's certainly interesting, I think, that the AJC uh, has stepped up as far as uh, the Israel reforms and been
1: critical. How critical are they?
0: Well, uh, you know, what have they, um, uh, what have they said, the new law was pushed through unilaterally by the governing coalition amid deepening divisions in Israeli society, as evidenced by the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who've taken to the streets. I mean, they're saying they're just accusing Netanyahu of using blunt force that say and they're they're even coming out first in saying it i think that they are um they're really uh, rattled by what the um what the israeli government's doing this and you know i was i talked a little bit now just about the the cultures that uh, that the american jewish organizations come out of uh you know one of the one of the interesting things uh, i think is that even before netanyahu had put his government in place in late december when he was pulling it together the the thing that shocked a lot of israelis the thing that really started started the nascent protest movement was uh some of the sort of extreme things that uh, the proposed the then proposed cabinet ministers had said or were saying about lgbtq community and you know that's uh that's something that's taken for granted at least on on the uh uh, among the liberal american majority that the lgbtq have rights that they should marry they don't marry in israel but they have rights equivalent to marriage that they shouldn't be persecuted in Mm -hmm. any way and people are saying really shocking things and so that's Uh, You know, from that perspective. And so that I think is, um, it's, you know, one of the main elements is driving this, uh, this, this unease with the reforms, that and also the American Jewish Committee, the ADL, most of their members are reform or conservative, and uh, they the, the the courts in Israel have been seen as protecting the non-Orthodox community, something that's not so much noticed here in, in the state and sorry, something that's not so much noticed among Israelis, but is very much noticed here where those two movements are uh, are preeminent in the American Jewish community.
1: Right, the Reform Movement, a uh, relatively liberal uh, mm-hmm. group of American Jews, the largest organized group of American Jews uh, by congregation membership, I believe, and mm-hmm. what's called the conservative movement in American Jewish uh, life. It's kind of centrist. Um, right. And then you get the Orthodox Movement, which is further to the right, and they have political groups allied with them, too, like you, you cite the Zionist Organization of America, um, Further to the right. But there's also the well known Israel lobby, APAC, the American mm-hmm. Israel Public Affairs Committee. And you're right that they took a cautious approach. And I'm very curious about what APAC is doing because they are so influential over American policy.
0: Uh, I, you know, APAC, I think, it, what's interesting is that in March, uh, they were initially part of the talks that uh, wanted to express some sort of uh, in, a, in much less blunt ways that they did, that the organizations did last Monday. But you know, APAC was part of the conversation among Jewish organizations that were going to express caution about uh, what uh, Netanyahu was planning. Uh, APAC's in a difficult position as far as it's concerned because a lot of their credibility has to do with their influence with any given Israeli government and again, any given American government, and they cannot come out as too critical of of, um, of the Netanyahu. Uh, uh government on the other hand they're bipartisan and uh or you know non-partisan they have a lot of donors they've had a lot of leaders who are democrats who give a lot of money to democratic politicians uh, if you go to their annual conference when they had them they've, they've canceled them since the pandemic uh you know they're they're a lot of reformed jews a lot of conservative jews and they um they don't want to alienate that sector as well and the the israeli protest movement is is gaining traction among among democrats among jewish democrats in particular it's giving them license to to criticize israel and i think a way that they never felt they've had license before so it's like they basically apex caught between a hard and a rock place a rock oh, and a, a hard rock. place oh a
1: rock and a hard uh, a place in a hard rock cafe i don't know something like that yeah, exactly. um neil in brooklyn you're on wnyc hi neil
2: uh, hi, thank you for letting me on, Brian. Yes, I'm some. Um, I am an American Jew who has visited Israel many times. I did part of high school at in, 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 uh, the University Secondary School, and I actually studied Arabic studies uh, at Georgetown and worked on developing the two-state proposal uh, for Israeli-Palestinian peace. Um, and this government is ignoring a tenant that democracy is not just a dictatorship of majority over minority. In America, we have split government. The Israeli system is very different. And right now, the only check on the possibility of a dictatorship of a democratically elected majority, a barely minimal majority, is the Supreme Court, and they're trying to take that possibility away. Uh, Israel needs to be... In my opinion, in the opinion of many people in and out of Israel, Israel must be democratic and secure and Jewish, and you can't give up on any of them, including democracy.
1: And so do you yeah. feel like your relationship as a longtime supporter of Israel, as I think you characterized yourself, is changing? I mean, is it at an emotional level? Is it at a political level? What are the implications as you see it?
2: It's all of the above. It's emotional, it's political, it's financial, and uh, the Netanyahu regime, which is including people who are too racist to be allowed to serve in the Israeli, in, in the Israeli army, and, and a, someone who was in jail for tax evasion, uh, all because Netanyahu wants to save his skin in that process. And so the challenge is how to support an Israel that is Jewish and democratic and secure Mm-hmm. without supporting this government. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. Uh, there was, I don't think this challenge existed before. And Neil, thank,
1: thank you. I'm going to leave it there for time. I appreciate it. Saul on Staten Island. You're on WNYC. Hi, Saul. Thanks for calling in. Um, you're welcome. Good
3: morning to you and to your guests. Uh, I guess I'll be the counteract to Neil. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I've been to Israel many times. My connection to Israel is mainly ideological. But I just wanted to push back on what I believe is a mischaracterization of the reforms in particular. It, it's being characterized in the American media in general as, you know, this hard-line right-wing government totally, you know, being off the rails and pushing it through. There are certain things that should be reformed in Israel, judiciary, towards legislation, which is what's going on now. In Israel right now, the people who get to choose the next Supreme Court justice are the Supreme Court justices themselves, plus a couple of people that they add, like lawyers, that they get to choose to be on the panel. The The equivalent would be if Sotomayor leaves the court and Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito sit on a panel with two people from the Federalist Society and get to choose who the next Supreme Court justice is. That shouldn't be happening. That should be changed. That's one of the main reasons they're trying to change it. Now, how they change it? They did because the right-wing government in Israel now are a little hot-headed. They tried pushing it through without getting a consensus. That is true. It was a little pushed in. But the idea that this is some over-the-top, unreasonable reform that's being shoved down the throats of Israelis isn't true. Half the Israeli people are right-wing, which is why the elections were so crazy. There were five elections in a row.
1: Right. But what But what do you say, to, and, and understanding your critique of how Supreme Court justices are selected there, um, to the big problem that a lot of American Jews, among others, have with this particular change, um, because in Israel, unlike the United States, there isn't a separate executive branch and legislative branch like we have the president and we have Congress. They have the prime minister system. So that's basically whoever... Uh, the Knesset, their Congress, chooses to be the head of state, is the head of state. So the the Knesset has all the power except the checks on them by the Supreme Court, and now that's largely gone. So it's not really a democracy in the sense that it was two weeks ago. So your your reply.
3: So my reply would be that that isn't. I mean, it's not hundred percent true that there are no other checks. The other check would be the minority getting enough votes to become the majority, and that should be part of the question of the judicial reform qu- um, question in general. Should be how do we make this effective checks and balances on both sides? It's not good for the legis- for the for the judiciary. For example, one of the other things they want to re- do reform, and I'll speak quickly because I don't want to take too much time. Is that they have a standard where a judge can just on their own decide that something is either reasonable or unreasonable, right? A judge without any reference to any law can say, "I don't find it reasonable." I decided that you know um, earlier today you're talking about rent and rent stabilization. Imagine a conservative justice in the Supreme Court says, "I don't think rent stabilization is reasonable." Therefore, it's illegal to stabilize rent, and that's what can happen in Israel. That's also a problem. So you need to have checks and balances on both sides, and that should be discussed. Calmly, I mean, it's the Middle East, believe me, I'm an Israeli, I know how it works. (laughs) Nothing can be discussed calmly, but it has to get discussed in a way, and both sides need to respect each other and not claim that the other side are evil. Right.
1: Thank you, Saul. I appreciate your call. One more. Jeremy and Yonkers, you're on WNYC, and Jeremy, you're going to have to limit you to about 30 seconds. Hi there.
4: Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. I will be very quick. So uh-huh. my, um, my concern regards specifically the um, function of the judiciary having an, and its new um, scope potentially allowing the current cabinet to redefine Jewishness. Um, this both as a product of being able to define who is eligible for birthright, who is eligible for homecoming, but also for me personally as an LGBT Ashkenaz, just thinking about my ability to, j- to claim Jewishness um, as a philosophical point. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that these things interface not only affects you know my own concerns as an American Jew and um, you know someone who supports land back movements domestically and also in Israel and who's concerned about you know the rights of Palestinian citizens, but also just as a person who wants to be able to say confidently, "Hello, I am queer and I am Jewish."
1: Jeremy, thank you very much. Um, as we start to wrap up, Ron and my guest is Ron Campius, Washington bureau chief for JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. We've heard a smattering of calls, obviously not a scientific sample, but people with some different views um, as conversation starters or conversation continuers, as we do here. How is the Biden administration reacting to the weakening of the courts in Israel? Are there implications for U.S. policy in a way that matters to Israel?
0: And the Biden administration is very concerned about uh, the weakening of the courts. I mean, uh, Biden spent his entire political career upholding Israel as a model democracy and an ally, and he sees uh, the, he sees the proposed reforms as uh, undercutting that. And um, and they're actually they're beneath the services. They're not just uh, diplomatic implications for how the United States uh, uh, defends Israel in international arenas, and Israel's always counted on the United States to do that. There are security implications as well. Uh, Israel is a pillar of U.S. military policy in the in the Middle East, not just in terms of defending Israel, but in terms of Israel advancing U.S. interests, standing as a bulwark against uh, Iranian interests, which. Uh, uh, the United States would see a sinister with or without Israel as part of the the equation. And here you have um, military reservists saying we're not going to serve. It's a it's cutting ahead of uh, Israel, res- Israeli readiness readiness. You've got uh, intelligence sharing and intelligence sharing works best when you have two very, very similar societies, which is how it's worked between Israel and the United States, it's why you know the u s. has the five eyes po- policy with five four other countries that are very similar to the states, Canada, Britain, New Zealand, and Australia. And that's how it's worked with Israel. If Israel's seen as drifting away from the kind of uh, outlook, democratic outlook that the United States has, that's that might be a problem for intelligence sharing. So there's a lot of concern that runs hmm. deep uh, uh, for the Biden administration.
1: Does it go beyond opinion statement at this point? In other words, uh, the Biden administration saying they don't like this to anything that has consequences on the ground. I heard what you just said about things that could happen down the road. But like I saw the Biden administration is reportedly working with Saudi Arabia right now on some kind of normalization of relations with Israel. I think that's also to build that Gulf States coalition with Israel uh, against Iran. Um, But I'm curious if that sends a signal to Israel that there are really no consequences for you other than the Biden administration saying, we don't like it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, in terms of what the Biden administration would do, I don't think a, a lot will happen. But there are certain things that are out of the Biden administration and Israel's control that could happen, which you just mentioned. Whereas, you know, whereas the Biden administration thinks it's incre- incredibly important to bring together a coalition coalition that would stand against Iran. And an Israeli-Saudi relationship would definitely consolidate that. The Saudis. Might be the key actors here. They might, they might retreat from any. They are making noises that they would retreat. Even like the the existing allies or the existing partners that came in through the Abraham Accords are saying, you know, we don't want. Please, Prime Minister Netanyahu, don't come visit the Bahrain right now. Don't come visit the United Arab Emirates. It's even undercutting those important accords which were achieved under the Trump administration. So, uh, I think uh, you know things that. Netanyahu doesn't want to happen, could happen, even if the Biden administration is as pliant as, right. as can be.
1: By the way, in our last 30 seconds, does it hurt the Palestinian cause, let's say the cause of a, of a two-state solution, if I can put it that way, each time an Arab country makes a pact with Israel that doesn't include Palestinian self-determination of some kind in the bargain?
0: you know I think that there, there are Palestinians who certainly posit that who put that forward I, I don't know if it's necessarily true I think that uh, the United Arab Emirates uh uh said when it got into the Abraham Accords we can have a positive influence for the Palestinians and they actually proved it at least in the short term practically by keeping uh, Netanyahu from ex- uh from annexing part of the uh of the West Bank so uh, you know there are I think from a Palestinian perspective there are pros and cons
1: And there we leave it with Ron Campius, Washington Bureau Chief for JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC Radio. 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.